everyone. Welcome to episode 196 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Chris is recovering from the flu. Yes, I have my voice, but we're we're going to try not to laugh too much so I don't go into coughing fits. You know, good luck with that with the two of us. <laughs> right, we'll see how it goes. We hope all of you out there are well and got your flu vaccine, PSA. Yes, yes, <laughs> PSA for sure. <laughs> So we have some thank yous. Yes, we have three new patrons to thank for joining our community. Lisa, Nancy, and Erica. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your support. It helps us so much with the costs of production of this podcast. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we also wanted to let people know that one of the perks of becoming a patron over on Patreon of the Book Cougars is that we do a monthly book giveaway. Yeah, and this month our book is House of Caravans, a novel by Shilpi Suneha. And this is her debut novel, and it's Lahore, India. It's about two brothers and takes place in two different timelines, 1943 and 2002. This was sent to us by Milkweed Editions. They put out such beautiful books. And once we got it and read about it, we thought it would be the perfect option for our monthly giveaway for our Patreons. If you become a patron by December 15th, you're automatically entered to win. Good luck, everybody. So Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm getting back to Democracy Awakening by Heather Cox Richardson. It's an audio book I'm listening to, which was just a little bit too intense to listen to while I was lying in bed with the flu. So I'm getting back to that. It's about the current state of our democracy and the trials and tribulations over the decades that have led to our current seemingly impassable divides that we're currently experiencing. So that wasn't one I could really pay attention to while I was in that state. Yeah, that's pretty heavy for a a feverish brain. Yeah. I'm reading another book that's been put out by Milkweed Editions. It's called The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. And this is a novel by Deborah Magpie Erling. She is an indigenous author. It's really interesting. I read a little bit about the backstory about this novel. She was asked to participate in an art collective about the bicentennial celebration of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And they wanted Native artists to kind of do some piece of art from their perspective about the Lewis and Clark expedition. So she worked with a photographer, Peter Rutledge Koch, and they came up with this art exhibit called The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. It wasn't very big, but she couldn't let go of the voice of Sacagawea and decided to delve deeper into what her life was like. There's not much known about her. She's known to have been the person that helped act as a guide for Lewis and Clark, but not much else. And she was a teenager when she did that. So I've just barely started it. And it's a little bit tricky because not only is there a little bit of dialect, but she almost created her own language around the way that she handles certain aspects of how Sacagawea looks at the world. I know I'm being kind of vague with that, but I'm not very deep into it. It's definitely a novel I'm excited to read, but it requires a lot of concentration and I think is going to take a little while to get used to the dialect. Mm -hmm. But super interesting, really excited about it. The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. 
by Deborah Magpie Erling. I'm so happy you're reading that one. It caught my eye when it came out, so I'm looking forward to hearing about it through you. The other book I'm reading is uh, The Librarian's Guide to Online Searching, Cultivating Database Skills for Research and Instruction. And this is the sixth edition by Christopher C. Brown. And it's one I checked out at work just to, you know, keep my skills up to snuff as I learn how to help students more directly in their research. So more to come on that. I'm reading a book that I couldn't bring into headquarters today because it's heavy. (laughs) And I was already carrying (laughs) a metric ton of books as I do back and forth from home to headquarters. It's called Tender Heart, a cookbook about vegetables and unbreakable family bonds by Hetty McKinnon. It's a cookbook and it's all about vegetables. Each chapter is a different vegetable, greens, carrots, mushrooms, daikon radish, really interesting. But the other thing that the book is, is a memoir. And it's mostly a cookbook, but there are threads of memoir. The, the title Tender Heart is the nickname that Hetty's father had. And he died, sadly, very young when Hetty was 15. So her life with him was cut very short. But his influence on her food life was large, even though they didn't have much time together. So the opening of the cookbook is a lot of beautiful family photographs and her talking about her family. And then that is also woven through with essays throughout the cookbook. I have several recipes that I'm hoping to cook this weekend. So more to come on that. But beautiful, beautiful cookbook. I got it out of the library. Highly recommend you take a peek at it. Again, that's called Tender Heart. Oh, I wanted to say also beautiful cover. It's a smiley face made out of vegetables. <laughs> so oh, that's awesome. Really recognizable. <laughs> Maybe I'll try to take a picture of myself with it and put it on social media. Nice. So what did you just read, Chris? Well, drum roll, I did finish The Divine Comedy. I think I made it through reading The Paradiso, which is the last section, um, The Divine Comedy by Dante. Uh, The first section is the Inferno, the second section is the Purgatorio, and then Paradiso is the third. And I have to say it was the most challenging for me because it's so esoteric and allegorical. He's trying to write in this last section what it's like at the highest levels of heaven and meeting God and all of this. So there's a lot of light Obviously, you need to understand what was going on with theological arguments at the time, maybe to make this more interesting. I've heard it's the least read of the three of them, and I can totally see why. As I said in my very brief Goodreads review, I say review with quotation marks, I turned all the pages and I saw words. I don't feel like I read it because there's nothing to latch on to, but I have to thank Colleen and Robin for helping me get through the Divine Comedy. It's one of those that I've always wanted to read, and it was a surprise choice for this year, but I'm glad to have been through it. So I know when I asked you why you wanted to read it, you said in part it was because it was referred to a lot 
and Dante in general is referenced a lot. Do you think that the other ones, like the Inferno is referred to more often than the others? Do you think that's true? Because that's the one that I was more familiar with before you started reading. Yeah, I think the Inferno is the most read of them all because you can really understand it Hmm. without needing to have historical or theological context. I'm sure it's enhanced by all of those things. And some of the notes do a good job of giving you as a modern reader, you know, just enough to maybe understand a little bit more to give you more context and that kind of thing. But of the three, I have to say, like, I think the Purgatorio is my favorite, again, in quotation marks. Um, (laughs) I mean, the Inferno was just so violent and awful and full of torture. And it was just one thing after another, very gruesome and dark because they're going down into hell, the furthest away from God's light. But in Purgatorio, when they're starting to ascend from hell towards heaven, there's people who are actually struggling with things and trying to improve themselves and learn from their lives that made it more engaging for me. Mm, And it also covered the seven deadly sins, which have always intrigued me as well. Mm. I'll just say Dante says at the very beginning of the Paradiso that He's going to describe God, which is impossible. (laughs) And then you have how many thousands of lines following that to try and describe what he is seeing. Hmm. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. I finished The Professor and the Madman by Simon Winchester, a tale of murder, insanity, and the making of the Oxford English Dictionary. We've been enjoying Nonfiction November this month, and we did a video over on our BookTube channel where I mentioned this book, and people had things to say about it. We've gotten emails from people saying that they enjoyed it. So it really encouraged me to dig deep and both listen to it and read it. We've both read The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams and The Book Binder. So the Oxford English Dictionary was something that's on our minds this month. So it seemed like a good excuse for me to dig deep into this one. And it's about James Murray, who was the gentleman who was largely in charge of putting together the OED as it's referred to, and receiving definitions from people who were volunteers, submitting words to be put into the OED. And one of those is this gentleman, Dr. W.C. Minor, who submits over 10,000 words to the dictionary. At one point, Murray goes because he wants to meet this man to find out that he's actually an American living in an insane asylum in England. It was a hard book to read because Minor is kind of an awful person. He murdered somebody. That's why he got put in an insane asylum, because instead of going to prison, they determined that he was insane and got to be put in an insane asylum instead, and spent most of his life there. He also had a sex addiction from a very young age. His parents were missionaries, and they were living on an island when he was a young man, and he was very tempted by the young women that lived there and frolicked around naked. So there were some parts of the book that were hard for me in that way. Like, he just didn't seem like a very upstanding character. But he grew up in the States, and he went to Yale, and he became a doctor, and he already seemingly as a young man had some psychological 
struggles and then ended up as a doctor in the Civil War and saw some really terrible things, which seems to have been, I guess you would say, the nail in the coffin for how he could handle his insanity. So ends up going over after Civil War to England, murders somebody because he's having visions and thinks people are out to get him and ends up in an insane asylum. So it's about that. (laughs) (laughs) So who does he murder? Just a stranger, just a guy who was on his way to work and left this widow with young children. And then that part of the book is kind of interesting because she ends up befriending him and visiting him, this widow in the insane asylum, which was interesting. It's a very twisted tale. And a really interesting part of the history of the making of the OED, right? The creation of it. Yeah. Yeah. So really interesting to read a nonfiction account of the making of the OED. And I'm anxious when we talk to Pip Williams next week to ask her, because I know she read this, and I think that was part of the inspiration for her writing the two books that she did, the two novels. The Professor and the Madman, Sordid Tale. Oh, I should say... I'd listened to the audiobook also, and Simon Winchester, the author, narrates, and he did a great job. Well, I did finish the Dictionary of Lost Words. I think last episode, it was one of my currently readings. I really enjoyed it. I was surprised by how much time it covered. I think when I picked it up, I initially assumed, well, it took decades to finish the OED, but still, I didn't think it would cover that much time. It starts in February 1886. And the epilogue is 1989. So huge chunk of time. Lots of wonderful characters. The main character is Esme, who is the daughter of one of the assistants to Murray, who is the first editor of working on the Oxford English Dictionary. I enjoyed it very much, I have to say. And I know we'll be talking about this probably a bit more in the next episode because we will be talking with Pip and I'm sure this one will come up as well as our fourth quarter read along. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it took 70 years for the OED. 70. So long. Yeah. That's some serious stick to <laughs> Well, the descriptions in this book, the Dictionary of Lost Words, like the wall of pigeonholes where they would put the slips of paper with the word and a definition and all the example sentences of it. I mean, this is done before computers. It was done before ballpoint pens even. You know, when you think about that and just how many people it took and how much serious focus it took to try and define the English language. Yeah. It's pretty ambitious. And there have been other dictionaries. Right. But they were trying to obviously make a monumental one that covered, quote, everything. Right, because it was at a time when they had determined that English was going to be the language of the world. So that's why they wanted to put this together. Well, yeah, in England at the time, they thought they were the center of the world. I mean, they were a major power Mm -hmm. in the world at that time. Yeah, and there was so much precision That's the word that I thought of as they were doing it, because I want instant gratification. There were times when I was like, oh, my God, you guys are still on S? Keeping on S for 10 years, you know? Yeah. Yeah, pretty interesting. It's amazing. I have consulted it a couple times at libraries, like the old volumes, and you could just get so lost in it now. Mm. And, And now it's digital. It's available digitally, which is still fascinating. Yeah. People who love words 
and spend their entire life and more studying that. Yeah. I think the origins of words are interesting, mm-hmm. but as a, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> talk about it with your friend Emily for a few minutes and then move on. But not as your life's work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I finished a book that's more recently written called Sea Change by Frank Viva. I'm going to show this to Chris. I don't know if we said we're not recording together because Chris is still a little contagious. So we're in separate rooms because of technology. So I'm showing her this over the computer. And this is a graphic novel, which I sometimes have a lot of problems with. I've talked about that before because I want to just read the words and not look at the pictures. But the way he did his pictures, they add to the words. They're not choices you have to make to look at the picture telling the story versus reading the words. And he also did really cool things with the way he designed the words. They would sometimes be in different directions or in different shapes. There's this one page where he's talking about something sad. And so the words on the page are shaped like a teardrop which I thought was so brilliant. Mm -hmm. And this is a middle grade book. They say it's for ages eight and up. And the word sea change, which is what the title is, refers to a profound or notable transformation. And this is indeed a coming of age story about a young boy who's living in Canada. But then in the summer, his parents want to send him off to the coast to Point Oconee, I don't know if I'm saying that right, in Cape Britain, Nova Scotia. And he's a young boy, and he doesn't want to do that. He wants to stay home and play with his friends. So he goes very begrudgingly, and he's sent to visit with his elderly uncle, who's a fisherman, and so he has to spend the summer fishing on this boat. As soon as he arrives, he meets some other kids his age and befriends them. And by the end of the summer, he loves living there. It's just a beautiful story. And so much filled with that feeling that kids have about what they want their summer to be. And then sometimes your parents have a different idea for you. And you get that little grudge on your shoulder. I'm not going to enjoy myself. I'm going to do everything to be mad. And then slowly it gets chipped away. I know that when I read about the author, he did spend time in that place in Cape Britain, Nova Scotia as a kid, but he said this is not autobiographical. It's only autobiographical in the sense of place, but not the story itself. So I really, really loved it. I highly recommend it. And I think it would make a great gift if you're looking for a book for someone in that age. Again, it's called Sea Change by Frank Viva. Well, I finished Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. This is one that I was doing a buddy read with Britta on. I have the hardcover from the library, but I primarily listened to it on audio because I was sick in bed. And I have to say, I used features on the Libro app that I haven't before Well, I use the sleep function a lot. So I'd put it on for 10 or 15 minutes. And if I fell asleep, fine. And if I didn't, I would just hit it again for another five or 10 minutes, which is so helpful. I mean, much better than the old days when you had a cassette and you'd fall asleep. (laughs) And all of a sudden it'd go kapunk and wake you up when it got to the end of side A, right? One thing I used was the bookmarks, which I know in the past I may have used a bookmark here and there, but I never really got into it. So when you hit the bookmark option, you can put in a title or just like a couple words to help you remember why you bookmarked that section. 
super helpful probably anytime, but when you are in a fluish fever and you're <laughs> listening to something and you're like, wow, that sounded really good. Instead of wondering if you dreamt it, you can actually go back and re-listen to those sections. So that is a super helpful thing. What Benjamin is doing, she's an academic who usually studies large movements and large systems. She's a sociologist. Um, and during the pandemic, she had, you know, a much smaller, more focused experience like so many of us have. And she was inspired by the idea of a virus as a model of how we can spread things like joy and hope and change. And I'll just read a, a paragraph just so you could get a sense of her voice. She says, what if the virus is not something simply to be feared and eliminated, but a microscopic model of what it could look like to spread justice and joy in small but perceptible ways, little by little, day by day, starting in our own backyards. Let's identify our plots, get to the root cause of what's ailing us, accept our interconnectedness, and finally, grow the fuck up. Mm. So it's part memoir because she's telling stories from her own life and her family. Her brother, who has mental health challenges, was a big inspiration for how she looks at the justice system. Not even the justice system, but just the carceral system, incarcerating people. And just how many of those people are folks who have mental health challenges. And she has some shocking statistics in here. One of them is that 50% of people killed by law enforcement are disabled people, wow. which is really shocking to hear. She looks at a lot of different areas of life, and she has some ideas that guide each chapter. Chapter one is called Weather. Bodies tell stories that people will not. And so she's using the concept of weathering. Your body is weathered by what it goes through and just how the body tells stories that people can't because maybe they are in denial or they just don't see it or systemic problems are ignored. And I really appreciated that. That gave me something to hang on to because she is such a big thinker and she has so many great examples from her own life and other people who have done small things that have caused incremental change. So I really ap appreciated that. She talks about economics and family, gender, race, so many different things. And she does look at things like, say, Amazon, the company, not in any great detail, but one of the things that Amazon is known for is that frictionless delivery, the frictionless shopping experience for customers. And she said, you know, there's nothing frictionless for the people who are on the delivery side of that model and just how much pain and suffering it does cause for people. She talks about so much in this book, and I wish I was a little healthier to give it a better summary. But one of the other things I'll mention is talking about the healthcare system and delivery of babies. Some of the statistics there are that more C-sections in the United States are performed at shift changes and at mealtime than any other time yeah. because people want it to get done. Yeah. And just how empowering it is for women to be able to deliver babies in healthier ways. Yeah. 
Wow. Sounds like there was a and lot. And she brings oh, so much. Like she talks about the Cuban health system and how Cuba has done stuff around the world. They have less of a colonial capitalistic health system than we do. Seeing Cuba used as a positive example is fascinating to me because for the most part, what I've heard is that Hemingway lived there and it's communist now. You know, I don't know that much about its current reality or its historical formation and and changes over time. Not that she went into that in great detail. I'm just saying like, wow, I didn't expect Cuba to come up as a positive example of healthcare. At the beginning, when you were talking about and she used the term disabled people, you said 50% of the people killed by law enforcement are disabled. I wonder if her terminology of disabled, if that includes people that are neurologically divergent. Mm -hmm. I think it does. Because she's talking about the Disabilities Act, she's talking about lack of understanding and and treatment Mm -hmm. for people and how often people who are neurologically diverse or disabled. I know that there are fine lines between those and some people don't consider it a disability, but when you're not functioning in the expected ways in society, it's considered a disability. And instead of being helped, those people are often thrown in prison where they might sit for years waiting for their court case to then even get them the help that they need. And her brother is an example. There's an awful prison in LA that is one of the largest in the world that just contains people instead of helping them. Yeah. I was wondering because I listened to an interview once with a mother of two children who were on the spectrum and they were boys who were now adults and six, five and big men. And she said she worried about her boys because she knew if they ever were pulled over by a police officer, they would panic and probably would run in the opposite direction. And then they were nonverbal. So what would happen in a situation like that? Mm -hmm. That's really complicated. It is. And she talks about parents dealing with that with their children. Mm -hmm. Even young people who don't have neurodivergence, how much do they actually understand about what can happen to them? Not any lack of imagination on their part, but I think it's just that young person way of thinking that you're invincible and it won't happen to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is such a, a huge thing when you're a teenager and young adult. Yeah. You know sure. things could happen, but you just can't think it's going to happen to you type situation. So right. I mean I'm a white middle aged woman and I clench up when a cop is around. Mm-hmm. I just can't even imagine how intense it is for a young black man. And then if you, on top of it, have a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Benjamin is not exactly talking about boycotting a business or anything to make a change. You know, she's talking about doing small personal changes that aren't harming anyone, but that are in partnership with others. Because she's like, you doing one thing on your own is one thing, but you do need to start spreading it like you would a virus person to person Mm. so i like the image a lot and it is a hopeful book but there is a lot of hard things to read about on the inside overall i'm so happy to have read it i came across it because it won the harriet beecher stowe social justice award this year which is how it came to my attention and the audio is narrated by benjamin and she does a great job of being impassioned 
but also calm enough that you can take it in mm-hmm. and not just get swept away right. by her words, which I think is really important in this. There are a couple of times I noticed where you could tell a sentence or two was inserted oh. into the original recording. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of interesting, like where the audiobook happened in terms of the publication of the final copy of the book. Mm. Because yeah. it's still out in hardcover right now. My other follow-up question was about the audiobook. I've never used the bookmark. So the way that I picture that happening is you've listened to something, and you say, oh, that's cool. I want to bookmark that. So then is the bookmark then at the end of something interesting you want to listen to? And so you go back to the bookmark and then rewind a little bit? How does it work? Some of them that I've gone back and listened to, what I wanted was right there. And other times I had to go back a little bit further, probably because I just didn't pick my phone up in time. You can see I'm holding this up for Emily to see. And it tells you like what track it is. Oh, cool. And then my little title I gave it is Amazon Frictionlessness Illusion. So you can kind of know what the subject was. Another awesome thing that I love that she said is rest does not require justification. Amen. That should be a bumper sticker. (laughs) Absolutely. Love that. Yeah. Um, And that we all need to rest. Yes. What a great message for you to get whilst suffering from the flu, too, because I know that's such a weird illness. Like you just lose days, literally lose days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I lost a whole week of my life. And it's a different feeling from when you're in your 20s and you have the flu and you're in your later 50s. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. The whole week gone. But I mean, I did get some good reading in. So yeah, there's always that. Yes. (laughs) So that's Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. I finished an audiobook as well called The Last Love Note by Emma Gray. This book just published officially this week on November 28th. It had been published earlier in Australia, but then for its stateside publication, it was picked up by Zibi Media, that new imprint by Zibi Owens. The audiobook was narrated by Leanna Walsman. She did a good job. She read the acknowledgments, which made me very excited. That's one of my audiobook pet peeves. One of the things, just talking about the audiobook that occurred, and I couldn't decide if I liked it or if I found it you always say that thing of something pulls you out of a story. There are scenes in the book where she's talking to somebody on the phone and they made it sound really different. But it was a cross between I was watching a movie or something, but I wasn't. I was listening to an audiobook. So it was just kind of odd. But this novel is about Kate, who loses her husband at a very young age from early onset Alzheimer's. Now she's trying to juggle being a single mother and a working parent, and she feels like she's not doing anything well. She ends up going on a work trip that goes awry, and she gets stuck in an Airbnb with her boss, Hugh. The book goes back and forth in time, not consistently to the same time, but just to different points in time to give you backstory of how we got to where we are now. So including her early days falling in love with her husband, who's now passed away, to when she first got this job with this guy, Hugh, who she's now stuck in an Airbnb with. And it's a love story that you don't, or at least I should say the narrator didn't see coming. (laughs) 
(laughs) It's a debut adult novel from Emma Grace. She has some YA novels out. And it's also semi-autobiographical because Emma Gray did lose her husband, not to early onset Alzheimer's, but to a heart attack when he was really young. So then there's a little meta thread throughout the novel because what the protagonist really wants, even though she works in higher ed and fundraising, what she really wants is to be an author. So that's a little meta thread there that I thought was fun. Really light read, poignant, It was just what I needed over the Thanksgiving holiday to listen to on my walks. Again, that's called The Last Love Note by Emma Gray. And thank you to Book of the Month. I listened to it on their audiobook app, which worked really well. Some apps, I think early library apps, if you were in the car listening to your audiobook and your GPS was going, Sometimes the audiobook would keep going while your GPS was talking to you, which is really hard. This Book of the Month Club app did stop. The audiobook would stop when my GPS was talking to me. So I was like, oh, kudos to them. They got that software done right. So Book of the Month just started offering audiobooks, I think, over the last year. And I really enjoyed it. Well, I finished the Peabody Sisters, Three Women Who Ignited American Romanticism by Megan Marshall. This baby has been on my TBR since 2005 when it first came out. I've popped around in it here and there over the years because I've been interested in Elizabeth Peabody, who is the oldest daughter, the oldest of the three sisters. And I had read an earlier biography of them, the Peabody Sisters of Salem, which came out in the 50s and Meghan Marshall mentions it here and just how popular it was. I think she first found out about the sisters from that book. And at the time, the Boston Public Library still had 30 copies of the book on the shelf. It was that popular. But it was, you know, from the 50s, so it presented the women in that light. But the author didn't contextualize them in the 19th century necessarily. And she also didn't have access to all of the letters and journals that Megan Marshall was able to consult. And Marshall wanted to look at the three women, like really understand them as human beings and what made them tick and what their relationships were like together. And then she really places them in their time period because each of them were really important, influential women in terms of religion and philosophy, education and art. So Sophia, the youngest, who married Nathaniel Hawthorne, was the artist who painted and sculpted. Mary was the middle daughter who married Horace Mann, the educator. She was a big novel reader and an educator for her entire adult life. And then Elizabeth was the eldest who was initially really turned on by the theological arguments going on at the time in the early 1800s. She was such a voracious reader and a hungry mind for understanding religion. Her parents at one point, who were both educators, while the father became a doctor and then a dentist, they were a little concerned about the amount that she was reading and everything. (laughs) And she did have some vision problems. So they make a deal, instead of her not being able to read at all, she says, well, what if I just read the New Testament for the summer? So she read the New Testament 30 times in three months talk about somebody who really knew what she was talking about the subtitle three women who ignited american romanticism you know they each contributed to 
the fields that I mentioned already in such profound ways, yet didn't necessarily get credit for it because one, they were women and they may not have published first. Because like the term transcendentalism, Elizabeth Peabody wrote that in an essay that she tucked away, I think it was like 1925 or so. I'm not sure if it was Emerson who used the word for the first time in publication in like the 1830s, 1836, something like that. So the men get the credit for these ideas that she originated really in a lot of ways and helped create. Sophia went away by herself as a woman in the early 19th century to commune with nature and wrote about the unity of nature and feeling the spirit in nature, you know, two decades before Thoreau went mm -hmm. into the woods. So that is aggravating as hell. But thankfully, Megan Marshall has recovered them in this way and shown their contributions. Dante was mentioned several times, but <laughs> one of the most fun connections. Oh, I should also say, so Elizabeth was the brains, Mary was the beauty, and then Sophia was the invalid. That's kind of how they were known in a lot of ways. Mary was dark-haired, and the other two sisters were lighter-haired, so I guess she, she really kind of stood out. But she befriended a woman named Deborah Taylor, who was the wife of a minister, Father Edward Taylor, who was known as Boston's waterfront preacher. He became the model for Melville's father uh maple in moby dick mm. for people who've read moby dick he's the preacher that is using all of these sea terms like he's preaching to seamen using nautical terms and everything and i thought what a connection that was one of the more surprising ones because these women too were so involved in the intellectual and artistic milieu is that the right mm -hmm. word of boston salem was kind of a backwater the Boston was where things were happening. Like in the case of Elizabeth, it's just so surprising how much she moved around on her own in all the different places she lived in like the 18 teens and 20s and 30s. Mm. I think at one point Marshall says that around the early 1820s, like Boston was the place to go for single women to find work. Hmm. And quite often, I think one of the stereotypes is that didn't happen until the 1870s and 80s when girls and young women were leaving farms to go work in factories or shops or something, say in Chicago. It could just be the different regions, obviously, because Chicago was nothing in 1820s. Yeah. I mean, this book totally sparked my imagination. And I hate to mention Hawthorne because he's such a complex, knowable character in a lot of ways, I think. But he and Sophia, I think they were both kind of assholes. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's harsh to say in some ways, but like there was one time when Sophia kind of betrays Elizabeth. So the Alcotts are also in here. Elizabeth is living with the Alcotts in Boston. And Mr. and Mrs. Alcott go into Elizabeth's room and read her private mail Ooh. to find out that the sisters were talking about them hmm. and saying all this stuff. And, and I'm just like, oh my God, that's like <laughs> awful. So the Alcotts, we're also a little woo-woo in some ways, which we know from reading March right. and our summer of little women that we went through. But yeah, Sophia and Nathaniel definitely had their own thing going. And I mean, it sounds like 
as we've talked about from some other things we read this summer, they had a really great relationship for themselves, but I think it was one of those us against the world things mm. and us against our families things in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, complicated. Yeah. And Mary married Horace Mann, who the two of them founded Antioch College right. in Yellow Spring, Ohio, birthplace of another famous American, Emily Fine. <laughs> Horace Mann is a name we heard often growing up. Yeah. And then with my work in philanthropy at, with Antioch College, I heard that name all the time. Never heard his wife's name, but heard yeah. his name. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Tyler Peabody Moore. So after he passed away, she wait, wait, ended up going. Wait. You just said Mary that? Tyler Peabody Moore. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, was she named after Mary Tyler Moore? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh God, that's too funny. I'm like, no, that's great. Mary Tyler Peabody Mann. Mann. After her husband died, she moved back to Boston and, and she and Elizabeth lived together in their old age. But Mary ended up writing a biography of Mann and also of an indigenous woman activist, I believe. And then she wrote a novel because for one year she accompanied Sophia to Cuba where they lived for a year on a slave plantation for her health. What's interesting there is Sophia thought it was all lovely and glamorous and didn't mind the slavery, whereas Mary, who was also working as a governess and had more maybe immediate contact with some of the enslaved people who were also laboring in the house, was appalled by it. Hmm. That part made me wonder about reading the Hawthorne biography, and then reading Hester by Laurie Lico Albanese. You know, she brought in the enslaved people storyline in Hester and and Hawthorne's attitude towards slavery. So in some ways, too, Hawthorne and Sophia apparently had similar views of slavery that were formed prior to them even meeting, possibly. I just need to say, so one thing I learned about reading this big book in bed while sick is that my glucosent battery life is not exactly as long as I thought it was. <laughs> I think I said, I don't know if I said it on a podcast episode or a video that we've done recently that I only had to charge it once and I've had it for like a year. Okay. If you're reading heavily with it, you kind of have to charge it like every two or three days. Okay. Just letting people know. I don't want them to, if they get a Glocusent, I don't want them to think like there's something wrong with their battery because Chris said, oh, it lasts for a year. Right. So <laughs> that, that was me just not remembering or not using it as much as I had been while I was sick in bed, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. Hours at a time. Yeah. So what was wrong with Sophia? Well, you know, it's really interesting because Part of the problem was her father becoming a physician and dentist when he did, and medical treatments changing for teething. They used mercury on baby's gums, and they would use it to the point where the child would start salivating, and that they thought that was a good thing, but salivation in that context is a sign of mercury poisoning. And so mercury lodges in the body, in the organs, forever, And it causes a lot of neurological damage and personality changes, among other things. So that could have been part of her problem. She also suffered from migraines. Hmm. 
But a lot of people who do have health challenges, and I used myself as an example who had a health challenge in my younger years, I would often use it as an excuse not to have to socialize Mm. or go places. Mm -hmm. So I think she used it in that way too. Mm -hmm. But she did suffer from from migraines. Mm. Wow. And she also took opium every day. Like her mom really dosed her kind of heavily. So there was a time period when Mary and Elizabeth had both moved out and Sophia was home alone with mom and probably getting way too much opium for her symptoms, which then caused another problem because apparently opium, when it enters your system and leaves your system, it can cause headaches. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think it was a combination of maybe her natural leaning towards having migraines, but then also her medical treatment from a younger age. So did she go to Cuba and detox? I don't know how much the detoxing happened or if she maybe was just dosing herself because at one point she advises somebody to take it in the morning if you're going to take it so that you don't have night terrors Mm -hmm. induced by opium. So I'm not sure if she took it her entire life then later or only when she needed it. Wow, what yeah. a complex set of characters. So over, oh, overall, yeah. did you enjoy reading it? I did enjoy it. It is so dense, though. I held up the book to Emily earlier so she could see it. I mean, I, I was joking and saying it's like, oh, it's six point font in single spaced with narrow margins. It's not quite that bad, but it's a small font and just very, very dense. There's a lot packed in here. Because the sisters wrote letters to one another, there are journal entries, and sometimes, as Marshall said, she could hear about the same event, and they happened in the same day from like three different perspectives. Mm. So I really enjoyed it. It is not a fast read by any stretch of the imagination. There's also over 100 pages of very detailed notes, which I haven't dug into yet. Like I've read a couple here and there. But the notes are often in these more academic or highly researched books, like where a lot of the juice is. Yeah. And you can get a better understanding of the arguments going on at the time period or in current times, like what scholars are arguing for or against kind of thing. But I really enjoyed this so much. I read the paperback version that Emily had gifted me that she had signed by Megan Marshall up at Newburyport Literary Fest when Emily was moderating an event with Marshall. And I already started going back and looking at some of the things I've underlined. And it's going to give me a lot to think about for a long time. Good. I'm so glad. Yeah. So that's the Peabody Sisters by Megan Marshall. And it was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Yeah. Yeah. And it took her 20 years to write that book. Amazing. Oh my gosh, I can imagine, because I think I said in a prior episode, she also tried to read a lot of what the sisters read themselves. So in addition to all of those letters and journals and their own writings, the books that were influential for them. Right. Wow. Kudos to her. Mm -hmm. And I should say it ends, the book ends kind of when uh, Mary and Sophia marry And Elizabeth has her bookshop and printing press at that time. So she leaves you there when they're like in their 30s, around 40. Hmm. And there's an epilogue where you get a a little bit of what happened to them. But she stops it there because her fascination was 
their relationship as sisters and how things ebbed and flowed and how they all rejoiced in their sisterhood, but then felt suffocated by it at times. Hmm. So one of the reviews I read about it said, I hope there's going to be a part two. (laughs) Now I wish I'd had a chance to ask her that. I don't think so. I don't think so. You know what she said she was working on when I saw her last spring, but who knows? Maybe in her retirement. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Book of the Month a book subscription service that offers a curated selection of titles to choose from. The books are available in hardcover, and for you audiobook listeners, they've recently introduced a selection of audiobooks, so you can choose a hardcover or an audiobook each month. You download the audiobook into their app right on your phone or tablet for an easy listening experience. If you choose to receive a hardcover, it is delivered to your door in their signature blue box. Roughly 80% of the books are debuts and up-and-coming authors. The remaining 20% are well-known authors that you would likely recognize. There are usually five to seven titles to choose from each month, and one of the cool features is that sometimes they offer early access to a book that hasn't yet been published. This month, I chose one that officially pubs on November 28th. The Last Love Note by Emma Gray, read by Leanna Walsman, is a comedic love story about a young widow raising her son, working tirelessly to keep up at her fundraising job. When she goes on a business trip and gets stranded in Australia, she finally gets a chance to process her grief. I chose this book because I love a story with a single mom as protagonist that involves travel and love. And the narrator, Leanna Walsman, has a fantastic British accent. And I chose The Helsinki Affair by Anna Petoniak. I chose to get the hardcover. And this one is about CIA agent Amanda Cole who gets embroiled in an international conspiracy that involves high-profile assassinations and Russian blackmail. So to me, it sounds like one of those perfect international thrillers. And I can't wait to get my blue box. If you'd like to try a subscription, head to bookofthemonth.com to pick a book. For a limited time, you can get the first book for just $5 with code for you. F-O-R-Y-O-U. Check the show notes for links. I finished Grief is for People by Sloan Crosley. This is a memoir that's coming out on February 27th, 2024. She is someone who has been on my radar, but I've never read her. She's an essayist, a novelist. She edited the Best American Travel Writing one year. And this is a memoir. This is about a year where her best friend dies by suicide Her apartment is robbed, and we are on lockdown for the pandemic. So heavy, but also she's a humorist. So the writing is somewhat light. It's hard to explain. I flew through this memoir. Again, it takes place over the course of a year where she's trying to come to terms with the aftermath when someone you love and literally talked to the day before, commit suicide. She met her best friend, Russell Perot, when she worked for him as a publicist at Vintage Books, which is the paperback arm of Knopf. She even harkens back in the memoir to her interview with him and how he spoke to her. And he just had a very certain straightforwardness about him. He was married to a man in Connecticut, and they have a house here in Connecticut. And so she also would leave New York City and spend time at their house 
in Connecticut as well. So there are parts of the memoir that takes take place there. I really enjoyed her writing so much. I wanted to read you this part, Chris. Willa Cather makes an appearance. And there's lots of literary references in here, as you might imagine, because they worked in the publishing industry. She worked with him, I think, for five years before she decided to quit and pursue her writing career, which he wasn't happy about at the time that she did that. But it turned out okay for her. Oh, well, but before I talk about the Willa Cather reference, let me just read this little part. This is after she's been robbed. Her apartment's been robbed. She thankfully was not home at the time. And the detective comes in. She's talking to the detectives about being robbed. At long last, a muscular detective arrives, squeezing past his colleagues. He's wearing a purple tie and a gray suit that pulls at his armpits. He attempts to jog my short-term memory. Have I had anyone working in my apartment? A handyman? A housekeeper? I shake my head. A house guest? A party? The only recent visitor is the man I broke up with one week prior. Pencils down. Here's the whiff of an inside job, of less paperwork. (laughs) I now must inform the room that this man didn't exactly fight for our relationship. He wouldn't recognize a piece of my jewelry if he swallowed it. Furthermore, he's a creative director who paints on the weekends, and not like Francis Bacon. He's not in touch with a criminal element. Still, I amuse myself, imagining what would happen if I let the police think this person was heartbroken enough for retaliation. I picture them searching his house, finding the axe he keeps nailed to a wall, not understanding this is a weapon only insofar as hipster affectation is a weapon. Maybe he cared more than you thought, suggests one of the cops. No, He cared exactly as much as I thought. (laughs) So what gets stolen is a bunch of her jewelry. So that's part of what the book is about, what the jewelry meant to her and trying to find it and her trying to kind of find it on her own at some points. Okay, Mm. so now let me find this Cather reference. And this is in reference to her friend who did commit suicide. She's questioning why he didn't make a different choice, why he didn't empty his bank account and flee and try to go live a different life or something like that. And so she talks about this story, Paul's Case. In the story, Paul's Case by Willa Cather, a story you loved, an alienated boy flees his hometown and escapes to New York, intent on having his first and last hurrah. But he senses his own limits. And here's a quote from the story. He reflected drowsily to the swell of the music and the chill sweetness of his wine, that he might have done it more wisely. He might have caught an outbound steamer and been well out of their clutches before now. But the other side of the world had seemed too far away and too uncertain then. He could not have waited for it. His need had been too sharp. If he had to choose over again, he would do the same thing tomorrow. In the end, Paul jumps in front of a train. So that's an example of some of the literary references and the types of questions she's pondering and asking herself, because when someone dies by suicide, you can't ask them. So again, it's called Grief is for People by Sloan Crosley out February 27th. Highly recommend. And I will be looking for some of her other work. Yeah, I love that name, Sloan. Yeah. Her last book of essays was called I Was Told There'd Be Cake. Which I love that title. And I remember seeing that around. So I think I'm going to seek that out. That's great. (laughs) It makes me think of a t-shirt I saw recently that says, 
I put my book down for this. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a good one to show up wearing. Yes. For holiday get togethers. Part of me just wants to put that on a card and like hold it up when I'm in a boring conversation (laughs) or something. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, heading back. Another one I saw going around over Thanksgiving was I'm thankful for critical race theory. (laughs) Wearing that to some family gatherings. Ooh, la la. (laughs) What do you call that? Poking the bear. Oh, yeah. So we both read The Book Binder by Pip Williams. We both finished it and really enjoyed it. Yeah. I should speak for myself. I really enjoyed it. I think I liked the bookbinder a little bit more than Dictionary of Lost Words. Still kind of pondering why. And I think it's reversed for me, which is so interesting. So we'll have to think about that a little bit. And we're going to talk in depth more about both of these books with probably more emphasis on the bookbinder next episode, episode 197 the last episode of 2023. Holy smokes. In that episode, we'll have an author spotlight with Pip Williams, the author of both of those novels. And we will also have had our zoom discussion with listeners about the book binder as well. So lots to talk about next episode. Yes. So happy that that is happening this coming weekend and not last weekend when I was sick. Oh, that would have been terrible. Group conversations. Yeah. So, Chris, did you have any Biblio adventures while you were sick? Well, um, before I got sick, I did have the Paradiso Zoom conversation with Colleen and Robin, which was wonderful. I think we were all in the same boat with, what the hell did we just read? (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to have buddies when you're reading books like that. Yeah. Do you think you would have finished it if you hadn't had the accountability partners that you had? I don't think I would have. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, It's good for people to note that sometimes if there's a book that you've really been wanting to read, and you just can't get to it to try to do a buddy read is a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I don't always follow through with buddy reads. You know, there have been some that I've just like, no, I just cannot do this right now. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, obviously fine, too. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I had two. And one of them was a couch biblio adventure. I finished lessons in chemistry on Apple TV. This is a television series version of the novel of the same name by Bonnie Garmus, which was a huge hit. I think it was out last year, two years ago. I can't remember. I liked it. I didn't love it. I really enjoyed the novel. And one of the things about the novel that I enjoyed is that there were chapters told from the point of view of their dog, 630. And they had one little scene with the dog as narrating the scene. And then he appeared in episodes, there he was, but they didn't follow through with that very well. And I'm not sure how they would have really with television. But I was a little disappointed by that. And then Brie Larson, who's the main protagonist, sometimes her acting, she had a lot of facial expressions that kind of bugged me. And I feel like those softened up a little bit as the series progressed. And then the actress that played the daughter, I loved her. She is this little pipsqueak and her performance was great. There were things about it I really enjoyed and things I didn't. I did like the way it was shot. I thought it was beautifully filmed 
So I'd be curious to know what other people think. Sometimes when you have a novel you really enjoyed, as we know, seeing it in another version can be problematic. And then just last night, I went to the Guilford Library, our local library here in town, and saw Andre the Third talk about his new novel, Such Kindness. The main protagonist of this book, Tom Lowe, is semi-autobiographical. What he said he decided to do was go back and look at his own career and life. And there was a point before he became a very revered, famous novelist, where he made a living as a carpenter. And so he wanted to kind of play around with the idea of what would have happened if he had never become a novelist. And if he was making his living as a carpenter and hurt himself, had an injury that prevented him from being able to make a living, what would his life have looked like? So that was kind of the jumping off point for the idea of the novel. And then the character falls on hard times because he can't make a living and they lose their house and he gets divorced and things like that. If you ever get a chance to see him, he's a very compelling speaker. He's been teaching for 30 years. So he's very at ease talking in front of an audience and always quotes authors and, you know, Rumi and ties his stories together. He did read from the novel, which isn't always my favorite thing. But this is a novel I have yet to read. And it was actually great. His reading was really great. And you really got a feel for what a wonderful writer he is. I have read his book of short stories called Dirty Love, one of my favorite short story collections ever. I highly recommend it. And if you ever get a chance to see him, I see him every year at the Newburyport Literary Festival. That is his hometown, and it's kind of his hometown festival. So Andre de the third, his new book, Such Kindness. Do you have any upcoming jaunts, Chris? I do. I have a couple things on the calendar. The first one, I am excited to say that you'll be going to an evening with me of this. My wife, Laura Toma, who's a playwright, she's part of Shoreline Playwrights with her friend Teresa Melofogel. And they have readings coming up of two new Christmas plays. This is going to be in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, at the Drama Works Theater, December 15th, 16th, and 17th. Uh, Laura's play is the one I'll mention because it is a continuation of a Jane Austen novel. So the title is Miss Margaret's Barton Cottage Christmas Surprise by Laura Toma. Let me just read you the little blurb here. Years after Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, Margaret Dashwood returns home to surprise her family for the holidays. When she finds her former love interest, Lavinia, masquerading as the maid, jealousy, betrayal, and wild revelations threaten to upturn her plans for a lovely family holiday. Is Margaret willing to embrace her true feelings to save Christmas? Question mark. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. Laura obviously loves Jane Austen. It's one of my favorite novels, so I look forward to seeing Miss Margaret in action at the theater. That's great. I can't wait to go with you. That's going to be really fun. It's a really small, intimate theater. We've seen several things there now, and I really love going there. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes where you can learn more and get your tickets, too, if you're in the area and would like to join us that evening, Friday, Saturday, and then a Sunday matinee. You know what? I have two others that are both online. 
One is actually today. It's going to be recorded, though. Um, it's Dr. Alan B. Farmer. This is a lecture through the Ransom Center in Texas, the big archive there where they have a lot of literary holdings. His talk is Lost Books, The Dark Matter of the Early Modern English Book Trade. And he's going to be talking about the books that we've known that have existed, but copies no longer exist, and talking about that. And then December 4th at 6 p.m. at the Boston Athenaeum, Robert Darton is giving a talk about his new book, The Revolutionary Temper, Paris, 1748 to 1790. And that event I know is sold out for in-person tickets, but as far as I know, the online tickets are still open and it's $5 if you're not a member, which I think is a good deal. And Robert Darden, he's a guy who's kind of big in um, book history. And when I was in school taking that history of the book course, we read several of his articles. Very cool. I'm looking forward to both of those yeah. Couch Biblio adventures. Yeah, we'll put a link to the recording of the first one that Chris talked about. Um, the second one, I'm sure you only have access to the recording if you register for it. So yeah, yeah. I think so. It's what it sounds like. But uh, the Ransom Center has a YouTube page. Okay. So you can see all of their past lectures there as well. So I have two. The third season of Slow Horses dropped last night. So I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> this is the series I've talked about on the podcast before. It's based on the novels by Mick Heron, which I think is like 17 deep or something. I don't know, maybe 13. It's uh -huh. in the teens. Each of the seasons is going with the number of the book in the series. So this is the third book called Real Tigers. I'm just in love with the cast in this show. So I will definitely be doing that. And then on December 4th, this coming Monday at the Durham Public Library, um, the actress Ileana Douglas is going to be there talking about her new book called Connecticut in the Movies, which I saw the other day when I was at RJ's. And it just looks really interesting. And to get a chance to hear her talk about it, I'm excited. That's at six o'clock at the Durham Public Library. Of course, this episode drops the day after that. So I'm excited about both of those things. How about upcoming reads? Well, I'm going to just talk about one in January that I'll be reading, The Iliad by Homer. Emily Wilson's new translation is what I'll be reading. And it just came out a couple months ago. There was a huge splash when she published her translation of The Odyssey a couple of years ago. So The Iliad was long awaited and I rushed out right away and got it. But there's going to be a group of women at this point. I don't know if any guys have signed on uh, reading it together. There is an Instagram group chat that you can be added to if you're interested in. This is a very low schedule just to give people a little pacing. But we're going to plan to read it over seven weeks. And we'll have the weekly Instagram check-in. And then we're going to have two Zoom conversations. So one at the halfway mark, just to see how everybody's doing. And then at the end, we'll have another Zoom conversation. So if you've always wanted to read the Iliad, now is a great opportunity. That's going to start January 1st. I don't know if I'll start reading on the actual first or maybe the second. We'll see. But I'm looking forward to digging in. Yeah, because the first you usually reserve for something. Like you really think about your... January 1st reading. 
So I'll be curious to see. I do. I mean, the last three years, it's been an Alice Hoffman Practical Magic book. Right. And I have one more to go. So that's what I'm going to be starting the year with. Okay, right on. Yeah. But I just wanted to give people a heads up about the Iliad thing if they want to join in on that. So is the best thing for them to just email us at bookcougars at gmail.com? Yeah, yeah. If, if you're interested, you can email us or connect with me, Chris Wallach on Instagram, because I can add you to the group chat. Okay, so those are two different ways. Chris Wallach on Instagram or email bookcougars at gmail.com. I have two that I'm excited about. The Queen of Dirt Island by Donnell Ryan, who I always thought was a woman, FYI, and just found out as a man. I love his novels. He's an Irish writer. This was reviewed by Amy Bloom in the Times a while back and fell off my radar. And then when I was at the event for Andre Debus at the library last night, I saw it on the 14-day quick pick and did a quick pick. So here it is in my <laughs> hands. Can't wait to read about it. I think it's about three sisters or a group of women in a town in Ireland. I'm not sure. And then we got a really nice email from Mary. Yeah, Mary in Pasadena. You want me to read it? Sure. Okay. So she says, among other things, that she too loved The Professor and the Madman. What a great story. Just wanted to recommend Are You Somebody and Almost There by Nula O'Fallon. I'm not sure if I'm butchering that name. She wanted to add that to our nonfiction discussion. Beautiful story of a Dublin woman. And then she also just finished Nothing Good Can Come From This by Christy Coulter. It's a short story collection of her struggles to get and stay sober, all the while working in the pressure cooker of Amazon. I like the book. Not crazy about it, but easy read and an interesting story. So thanks, Mary, for those recommendations. Yes, we're recording this on the last day of nonfiction November. So I was able to get Are You Somebody? The Accidental Memoir of a Dublin Woman by Nuala O'Fallon. I'm sure there's a Celtic pronunciation that we're missing here. But I'm really excited. I've never heard of her. And I love all things Irish, including my gentleman caller. <laughs> so in the out now category, publishing the day this episode drops Tuesday, December 5th is the end of the world is a cul-de-sac by Louise Kennedy, another Irish writer. So let us know what you guys are all out there reading. We always want to know you can email us at bookcougars at gmail.com or any of our social media platforms. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, we wish you lots of happy, happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.